0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is a professor of history at University of Exeter in England and he's the author of many books. Today we're speaking about one of his most recent, England in the Age of Shakespeare, Indiana University Press, just published in 2019. Jeremy, many congratulations on the book and welcome back to the show. Good morning. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps what you've been working on recently?
1: I'm coming towards the close of my career at Exeter and I am writing and researching quite actively. I still would like to think that although the body is creaking, the mind is active. And England in the Age of Shakespeare is the first of what I hope will be a number of books, in fact, having gone through the readers, the academic readers, Indiana has just accepted my England in the age of Austin, which will eventually come through. That's Jane Austen, obviously. Um, and after that, I'd like to do Dickens and Doyle and Christie. So there's a number of them. And what I'm trying to do in these books is to bring the perspective of a historian. I don't claim any particular insights as a literary scholar, But I think it's useful to have the contextualization brought up to date, applied to the works, and the works applied to the contextualization, and that's what I'm trying to do with this Shakespeare. As you know, Crawford, I also write other things, but I write them in strands. So this is the particular strand we're talking about today.
0: Very good. Now, you've been interested in fiction for a long time, haven't you? You've worked in James Bond before, for example. How how do you as an historian engage with literary sources, and how do they help you think about historical themes?
1: That's a fascinating question. I've always been interested in texts. I suppose I get that going right back to being an undergraduate, in fact, before being an undergraduate obviously some of those texts are fictional and some of them are not intended as fictional. Um, I mean, as you may know, I've written three books on the history of the English press, which in fact is a a form of textualism. Um, And indeed, some of the writers of of newspapers, one can think of Henry Fielding or Charles Dickens, also wrote, uh, wrote, um, you know, fictional works. So I'm not sure I would necessarily see a stark divide and indeed the famous 18th, sorry, the famous, the noted 18th century phrase, a history, as in the history of Tom Jones, can relate just as much to fiction as it can to what is intended as non-fiction. And I've discussed that in my recent book, or last year I think it came out, in Indiana published it, on attitudes to history in the 18th century. So I find fictional texts that are explicitly intended as fictional, interesting. But of course, most fictional texts are not. I mean, I've just been reading Dombey and Son, rereading it this morning. And Dombey and Son, you could argue, well, it's obviously a work of fiction, but Dickens is clearly intending it as a condition of England novel. And therefore, it's not simply a work of fiction.
0: You, the, the very interesting juxtaposition you have in, in this book, Sha- uh, England and the Age of Shakespeare, between social historical themes, formats and literary sources, how does all of that come together? Who is this book for? Who's your ideal reader?
1: Well, I think most people are interested in Shakespeare or have seen Shakespeare. So anybody that's interested in Shakespeare and would like to know about the context. That is part one. But part two linked to that, as you know, because uh, you've read the book, there is a lot of quite tight writing in which the um, the, te- the text is interwoven with what is going on. So it, 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 you know, it's not only that the texts illuminate Shakespeare, Shakespeare is illuminated by the texts. So I would hope anybody interested in the history or literature of the period would find it valuable. It's not intended for theoretical critics. I have to say that I'm sure that they offer a lot to those who like that, but I'm afraid I'm a nuts and bolts historian. I'm concerned with, as it were, both what happened and how contemporaries understood what happened. I'm not really interested very much in what people who you know, produce, let's say, 20th or 21st century literary theory, which would have meant very little to contemporaries have to say about that. And since this is a religious channel, let me make the point that most modern critics are writing outside a religious framework. And I think that makes it very difficult for that, for them to understand the culture in which Shakespeare's works are impacted. Or indeed, one might say the same thing for Jane Austen, or indeed for Charles Dickens. I don't mean that all writers in the past were necessarily devout, but I mean that they were writing within the context of a society in which devotion uh, and religious uh, motivation, religious causation, were regarded as very significant.
0: I think that's a, a very astute comment. I think in the Shakespeare criticism I've read over the years, uh, teaching Shakespeare, uh, a, a lot of it is very helpfully informed by early modern theological debates, but some of it, I think, just gets it um, completely wrong. Um, i fear so. How did you go about putting this book together? There's a vast range of reference here, Jeremy, through the Shakespeare canon. How did you actually write this book?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I've been interested in Shakespeare for a long time. I remember as a little boy, first having to be that great wo- role of the wall in Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, you know, an epic an epic performance.
0: It's a very important
1: um, role, an extremely important role um no i've 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 enjoyed uh, i mean i'm afraid i'm not a very relaxed person so it's very difficult for me to see something or to read something Without trying to once think about resonances and interpretation, and I suppose what you have got is the distillation of that in the book. I mean, obviously, uh, to write it, uh, you know, I reread a lot of literature, Shakespeare, his contemporaries, and a lot of criticism. Um, But you know, I've been—it's been with me for a long time. I actually, I was very fortunate. I was taught English at sixth form level by a very good. Uh, teacher man called Michael Fitch. And Michael wanted all of his top set to be able to go to read History at Cambridge where he'd read it. And therefore, he delayed all the A-level set text the second year of the two-year A-level course. And we spent the first year on a grand tour through English literature, mm-hmm. of which one entire term was devoted to Shakespeare and his contemporaries, people like Kidd and the Spanish Tragedy, uh, people like Webster, but primarily Shakespeare. And I think that was very important for me. I mean, I gravely disappointed him by not applying to read. English at Cambridge, but nevertheless, I benefited enormously from his uh, from his teaching and his legacy.
0: So, the book that you're that, that we're talking about today, England in the Age of Shakespeare, is it about Shakespeare's world or the world as Shakespeare saw it? Both,
1: and indeed, I I mean, I would have thought the the best of the chapters is the very, because it's not because it's the, um, you know, it's the only one that's important, but because it's actually, it was the hardest to write, the imagination of the age. Mm. And I deliberately put that chapter at uh, chapter one, because I think the imagination of the age is more important to uh, explaining the plays and their likely reception than discussing, shall we say, co-production.
0: Now, I, I was struck by that chapter enormously, Partly, I think, because it deals with issues to do with apocalyptic and millennialism, which we might talk about in a second, but also because it really reframes the project in unexpected ways. Uh, We we begin this chapter and we're launched into a discussion of witchcraft and the occult. Why did you decide to to frame the book in that kind of way?
1: Well, I think that one of the points I'm trying to argue is that in Shakespeare there is the real presence of evil again incidentally i think the same thing can be seen in both austen and dickens um i think evil is a is a is a presence in a way that for modern thinkers that's often very difficult but to me um The 16th century in some respects is still quite Augustinian, the struggle between good and evil being very central there. I mean, Shakespeare obviously brings it on stage, but it also can be seen in the way that his characters are tempted. To 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 what he clearly presents as wrong, so I think that there are there is a, a morality there alongside many other elements. They're not simply uh, uh, morality plays, but there is a morality there. And I was trying to discuss that. I was trying to 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 sort of un, uh, to un, uh, to explain. It, it, the nature of that, again, as I said, to a modern society. For, you know, there are many modern readers who are, uh, and listeners who are uh, devout in terms of modern day religion, but 16th century religion, was, 16th century Christianity is not the same as modern Christianity. Uh, and the same is true of other religions. And I think there can be a very ahistorical failure to understand that.
0: I think we should bring you to Northern Ireland sometime, Jeremy, for a little tour of the 16th century. Uh, (laughs) Nevertheless, nevertheless, there is also in that chapter a very um, evocative uh, description of the apocalyptic mood of the 17th century. Everything seems ultimate. Everything seems imminent. What's going on that that makes that so?
1: Well, there are a whole host of factors there. There are both Material world, I and mean, you know, so we're talking about the end of the 16th century economic expansion, demographic expansion. We're talking about really quite parlous socio-economic circumstances, particularly in the 1590s, 1600s, and 1610s, the end of the so-called phase A of the early modern economy and the beginning of the phase B. So, those both material things. But there is also spiritual dimensions and the second are not simply dependent on the first. I don't wish to offend any Marxist listening, but that's a sort of, you know, Marxism is as much a belief structure as an analysis. So the um, discussion of witchcraft, which I talk about at some length, reflects an element of psychological crisis, spiritual crisis. And then, of course, there are the the very um, anxious aftermath of both the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation, which are matters which divide families, communities, and you know also produce, as it were, the cosmic shock what does the afterlife mean in this context? What happens to ancestors? You know, the sort of image very clearly the case with um, in Hamlet, the ghost. What is the meaning of meaning when the church, which used to mediate that in terms of a ch- uh, unchallenged authority, is suddenly very much challenged? And uh, I think those are problems that created a multifaceted uh, spiritual crisis.
0: Now, in your book, we see other kinds of crisis as well, don't we? You you describe, um, very helpfully, changes in the urban landscape, changes in the rural landscape. Is Shakespeare best understood as an urban or a rural writer?
1: That, again, is a fascinating question. One of his great strengths is that he was both. He had a a rural background, although bear in mind what we might think of as a small town. Stratford-upon-Avon was still a town. Uh, But he had a a background in a small context in which you can readily walk into what we would call a rural environment, and one in which the annual rhythms, things like the harvest are tremendously important. But he then spends much of his life living in a metropolis where there are um, sort of non-natural sounds and smells and sights which force through a whole different range of experience. Uh, the way that the, 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 the night is lit by, you know, by lights, flames outside in a way that would, would just simply not be captured in the countryside. So I where the stars are the principal lighting of the moon at night. So I think that his range of experience reflects both and indeed you can find that much in his language.
0: How does Shakespeare represent changes that were taking place in London or in England generally in his lifetime?
1: Well, um, there are—I mean, for example, in King Lear, the—I think you can see a sense of the immiseration that comes from rural rural disruption. I think that's quite clear. clear. But a lot of his plays are not about social change; they're more about, insofar as he did, considering society, society as a backdrop for human drama.
0: A lot of his plays, of course, are historical. You know, the, he, he shifts action and perhaps even consideration of contemporary themes or worries and projects that onto different kinds of historical canvases. How how do you rate him as an historian? Yes, first, to be, the first
1: point, you're absolutely right. I mean, for example, his fear of the mob or whatever you mean by the mob or the, the propensity of crowds to... Uh, unattractive political um, disturbance is very present in things like Julius Caesar or Coriolanus. Not that the elite are necessarily de- depicted as a- acting in an attractive fashion, as in his story, Well, he, you know, he has his sources. I mean, Holinshed most famously, and and he uh, reads actively in the classics. I mean, I, I would say that by the standards of the age, he is writing and offering a relatively a relatively moralized history, which is of enormous interest to this day. It resonates. Had he been taking part in a sort of antiquarianism, uh, it wouldn't have been so interesting. I mean, you know, obviously there are aspects of it which we today would know are wrong. I mean, or simplistic, or questionable, um, or where we are aware of different uh, different approaches. But then Shakespeare is not, thankfully, trying to address a history seminar. And it has to be said that the way in which some historians are offering a politicised version of the past at the moment scarcely suggests that uh, fiction is absent from the world of scholarly academe.
0: <laughs> we might come back to that point in a second. Um, well, just uh, on this on this point of politics, how do you see Shakespeare interacting with the politics of his own day? Is he a propagandist? As, as he writes about, for example, uh, the shift from Elizabeth to James and his... His, his movement of genre across that period as well. H- how do you see him contributing to political discussion in his own time?
1: Well, there's been, I, I try and discuss that in the book. There's been a, a wealth of excellent scholarship on Shakespeare vis-à-vis, for example, the Earl of Essex, and you know, trying to capture uh, the extent to which he was committed to particular uh, factional outputs. I mean, I, I can't really add to that. What I do try and do is link up his, the moral perspective he offers to the account of a society which he depicts as fragile. And therefore, the very fragility of society means that um, evil intention by individuals or groups that he's principally concerned with individuals. Evil intention by individuals in positions of prominence can be terribly disruptive and his account of, of course, English history from sort of Richard II onwards is one in which sin, evil, ambition, all of them are proved to be hopelessly disruptive and to cut across uh, normal human relationships, as in son killing father, father killing son, uh, which is depicted in Henry VI or, you know, the, this, the fate of the children depicted in Richard III. Um, these are attempts to very much present history in a moral term, which would have meant a lot in, in those terms. And of course, you know, theology was in many senses seen in the same way. It's worth bearing in mind that in terms of Sermons. Um, the Book of Kings was tremendously important in the early modern period, and that very much presents the kings as moral agents and therefore as open to all sorts of sins, such as ambition and greed, as well as acting as the arm of God. Uh, or in the case of the you know a a, a, a um, christian thinker a, a the arm of the church you know the church militant in effect um so i think that that morality is central to the politics and i think to take politics out of the moral context is to um produce an account which is of limited value to understand it in that period. It's both drama, but it is drama that has meaning. The difficulty today is that so many modern uh, productions, they are offering you a meaning which would have been meant very little to Shakespeare's contemporaries and which tell you more about the image of the present and the understanding of the modern director, you know, sort of Hamlet produced as a sort of disquisition on Brexit, that kind of rubbish.
0: Well, we might come back to the the question of reception in in just a moment, Jeremy, but for now, if we think about some of the material you footnote, for example, you you engage uh, uh, very well and very extensively with that tendency in, I suppose, post-1970s Shakespeare criticism to project various kinds of political Shakespeare. Is the Shakespeare you reconstruct in this book much more of a conservative figure than many of these critics have suggested?
1: Yes, I suppose he is, and I'm trying to do the same thing in the Austen very much. Um, I think in the case of Jane Austen, it's easier because, of course, she left a um, um, unpublished history of England uh, in which her her views were, shall we say, rather bluntly, uh, rather bluntly offered. Um, The um, and we also have correspondence from her, of course. Um, In the case of Shakespeare, it's harder. And um, there is always the difficulty of distinguishing sort of the the author from the, the 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 characters and the speeches they are given. Equally so, I think it's fair to say that many authors um, provide um, a fairly clear-cut guide to what your response is supposed to be. I mean, you. You know, you, you, you don't go into, uh, King Lear without a sense of the goody and the baddy. And, you know, we would not take a, the same view of, of bastardy as is taken by 16th century or early 17th century moralists. But we have to be aware that you're often given quite strong hints by the depiction of characters as to what you're supposed to think about them. I mean, You know, I I dare say there's probably some brilliant theorist out there I haven't read who's trying to show that Iago is the hero of Othello. But I don't find that terribly convincing. You know, I'd prefer to stick with what Shakespeare offers us.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, as we think about what Shakespeare offers us, is your opinion that he is a nice man?
1: I really wouldn't know that. I I mean, I you know I don't know enough about him as an individual because I think in many senses he's a prebiographical figure. I find it fascinating the extent. Having written biographies myself, I've done George the Third, George the Second, Pitt the Elder. I find it very one's always aware of the difficulties of, of evidence. So George III is much easier than George II because with George II, we have very, very few letters indeed. Whereas with George III, we have a plethora written in his own hand. Um, to a great extent, prior to Pepys, I would say most 17th century characters are pre-biographical. And that might That doesn't mean you can't make comments about them, and we've been discussing them, but it does mean that in terms of what you might call a personal characteristic, you know, we can comment on their views, you can comment on the views of John Fox. Um, It's much harder to discuss, for example, whether somebody's nice, because that carries with it all sorts of uh, implications. Does he depict his characters in a nice way? I mean, what I would say is that he wants his comedies to end. Either well or in a bittersweet way, he doesn't want to add, end them with a savage, uh, sardonic uh, look at what has happened. So, if you want to use that as the term "nice," yes, then there is. Then, then he is nice. Um, but I'm not sure. I find the term "nice" terribly helpful, and uh, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as my use of the word charming when I use the word charming to my close friends to describe somebody else who is totally insincere. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So, you know, one has to be very careful. Nice has different meanings to different people.
0: As does Brexit. You mentioned Brexit uh, a few moments ago, and there's a chapter in the book, of course, on Shakespeare's um, representation of of European contexts. Is he a European? How interested is he in, in, in life on the continent?
1: European. He's, he's writing in the background of the European culture, a culture which encompassed a lot of Europe, namely that of the classics and the culture comes all of it, of course. Um, and also, of course, Christianity. Um, so, from those points of view, he's drawing on a common culture which isn't limited to England. Um, does he know much about continental Europe? Well, most people didn't in that period, so that would not make him too different. I'm not sure, you know, for both the Brexiteers and the Remainers, I've I, I said this on the radio, I've discussed this on the radio, there are similarities between them which are much more instructive in many senses than their contrasts, so they would probably both hate me to say that. Um, and I think it's not helpful For either side to go back and sort of plunder the past as if looking as if looking for validation for the present, what happens in the present day should rest fundamentally, in my view, on the democratic mandate, which you know uh, Parliament left to the people in a referendum. Now, people might like or dislike the what 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 was delivered from that. It's not my business to say. I'm um, but. As a historian, I'm not quite sure why views on the 17th century are supposed to illuminate the way in 2019. And again, as you will know, I wrote a book called Britain and Europe, in which I tried to draw it to attention both to the extent to which there is a, um, a trajectory in which you could emphasize points of similarity and to a trajectory in which you can em- 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 emphasize points of contrast. And I think that is the case. And I don't think, I really, you know, I really think some of the material, some of the writing, I mean, I published a piece recently in which I decried um, the attempts in in the newspaper like The Guardian by Sir Richard Evans to sort of argue that we were in some sort of, you know, position on the eve of, you know, some kind of Hitlerian takeover. I mean, he used language about Reichstag moments and things. Well, I think that's as unhelpful as, as it were, it would be if one was going back to look at Shakespeare. Now, ironically, of course, Shakespeare, you could say, was doing that in a sense. Is, if you're writing in, um, about Richard II and putting on a play about that at the time of the Essex conspiracy, is that intended to, uh, to sort of stir up people with the comparison? Or indeed, is it intended to stir them up with the comparison of this is a dangerous thing to do? You know, look at the mess that came from overthrowing Richard the Second. I'm not sure where I would be on that. I'd be very uncomfortable about using historical analogies in order to guide the present. I think any historian is aware of complexity. Now Shakespeare's job to offer complexity. He's offering a moral tale, and he's trying to produce a, you know, a a play. Um, but as a scholar, uh, I would always looking at the past draw attention to uncertainty, to plurality of views, to variety of outcomes, to the complexity of both causes, consequ- uh, causes, contexts and consequences. And from that point of view, I'm very uneasy about reading from the past to the present.
0: And your book really emphasises that, that effort almost to create ambiguity, the beginning with witches and the conclusion with Prospero. Why did you end the book with Prospero?
1: Oh well, I've always thought that Prospero is a fascinating individual. Obviously, for somebody like myself who is bookish, um, he is of great interest. Though I'm not—I don't have any magician's wand to break. <laughs> uh, and um, I also—I uh, can recall uh, that was a, a play I saw, uh, which very much moved me when I was a young adolescent. I used to—I was lucky enough to grow. To grew up in the outside outskirts of London and to go, I sort of worked as a newspaper boy and I took the money and then used that to go and see plays, two places, one the Young Vic which was excellent where you could sit very close to the stage. You had to sit very close to the stage. Uh, but the other one, I used to go to the Aldwych, the matinee, and I would buy a, a ticket for the very back row of the stalls, which was very inexpensive. And then when the house lights went down, I would crawl forward, crawl is but I would creep forward and get uh, so able to sit very, really, very front ways and see some absolutely tre- tremendous productions. Um, so. Uh, Prospero to me is something, you know, maybe it's a stage of life thing, is it's an interesting a very interesting character. I mean, as you know, he's now depicted in a hostile light. The standard approach to the Tempest is that this is a you know, how awful Western imperialism is vis a vis the Caliban figure or or the Ariel, you know, I saw the that the Ariel the production of the Tempest in which Ariel spits in his face, you know, Ariel played by Simon Russell Bill, very good production, I I ought to say. And, you know, that very much captures, again, the modern directors, if you might like to use the phrase abuse of the plays. I I actually would rather like to use that phrase. So there we are, we put it out. <laughs> um but the um but to me, Prospero is a much more interesting figure because he does have um issues and problems to use modern terms, but he is fundamentally a person that uses knowledge to good intent. And I think that's very important for all of us. And you know, you're, you're, this is a the, uh, the religious channel of the New Book Network. I would have thought people listening to that would very much understand that
0: perception. So we've talked about editors, we've talked about historians, we've talked about um, critics, We've talked a little bit about audiences. Who does Shakespeare belong to now? Oh.
1: Well, I'd say, first of all, because Shakespeare has been translated into so many languages, there is no particular reason why Shakespeare should only be seen as resonating in English culture. And, and indeed, many of the plays are presenting characters. Lear, for example, who are, you know, if you like to use the phrase, universal archetypes of, of individuals in particular circumstances who can be glimpsed widely in very different, very different societies. Um, what I would like to say is that one of the sadnesses of our move from being a literary culture to primarily a visual culture is that in the literary culture, Shakespeare belonged primarily to the people that read Shakespeare. Only so many people could see Shakespeare on stage. Many more people could read the plays, particularly once you have the age of mass literacy coming in in the late 19th century and cheap uh uh books being produced on wood pulp paper. So there was that period in which lots and lots of people could read Shakespeare and that was encouraged by the way in which, in the Anglophone world, Shakespeare was the basic set text for English literature. Unfortunately, in my view, uh, others will take a different view, we are now much more in a visual age where people are more inclined to see stories in terms of uh, film or some other visual media and that gives much more power to the director and I fear that that is where we are going badly wrong at the present moment. I mean, you know, I, I obviously – I don't see quite a few Shakespeare productions. I have to say um, I sometimes weary at the idioses, um and I do wish instead of being called William – you know, Hamlet family by William Shakespeare, you put the director's name on and you put at the bottom based on an idea or drawing an idea, I think that would be uh, more helpful. And I, I, you know, we're going back to the sort of 17th century, all for love, you know, the sort of Bryden approach. But of course, you know, when those are shown, Bryden's name is on them, I mean, and the other. I mean, you know, I discussed that at length in my book. Um, but the other people who changed Shakespeare, their names put on them, not the, not the, uh, not Shakespeare himself. So yes, I am dismayed by what's going on at the moment.
0: Well, Jeremy, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Before we wind up, can you tell us a little bit more about the Jane Austen book to whet her appetites for that?
1: Yes. I mean, uh, again, I mean, I've I've tried to use um, Jane Austen's uh, novels her correspondence, uh, her other writings. You know, for example, as you may know, you know, she wrote a number of uh, prayers which... Uh, have survived um and i've tried to use those in order both to throw light on her age and in particular to throw light on her i think there's a tendency today to present jane austen as a writer of the romantic period and to present her characters accordingly um elizabeth bennet you know on a, uh, on a on a peak in the peak district gazing into the distance as if she was a character from the brontë sisters um but, in many senses, I would argue that Jane Austen should be understood as a late eighteenth century writer, and I tried to offer that account. I also have very much you know she was the she was very devout personally, she was the daughter of a clergyman, of course, many clergymen in her family, one of her brothers becomes a clergyman, um, many of her heroes. The trouble is most people try tend to think of the egregious cleric in pride and prejudice, but there are many um, uh, clerics, Tilney, for example, who are, uh, you know, heroes in her novels. And I think that there is, they are in many senses a, um, a religious set of works, which is very interesting because they're in fiction. Just as, as, as you may know, in my book on history, I have a whole chapter on John Wesley's writings as an historian. And when people are writing in a way we don't usually tend to think about them, but they can be, you can get many, many more interesting insights on them.
0: Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for sharing that. Look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. And thanks for coming onto to the show this morning to talk about it.
1: I'm delighted and I'd be more than happy to do
0: many others for you. Great. And thanks to everyone else for listening in. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.